Over the next two episodes, we're looking at managing the crisis. And we're going to focus on two key questions. The first is one we've discussed a lot on this podcast. The second is new. What does it take to be a good crisis response leader? And who is the right person to lead your crisis response? And that's where we're starting. In previous seasons, we've been told that the business continuity manager shouldn't be the person in charge of the response. They should be present, providing advice and guidance, but they shouldn't be the one in charge. In the early interviews of this season, we heard some stories that were a bit different. Several of our guests had led the response and they'd held the gold command post. Not only were they glad to have done it, but they also feel it helps them be a better BC manager in terms of how they plan and what they include or don't in their documentation. So to start, here's Dean Beaumont on the downsides of being seen as the person who fixes everything. Yeah, so I mean, I think it's what works depending on the culture of your organization. There's there's a lot to be said for not being perceived as the guy who puts on the magic cape and comes in, you know, fixes everything because the danger of that is the rest of the organization fall asleep and just assume you're going to just ride in and be the cavalry and fix it, which is, you know, completely unrealistic, I'm sure. We all agree though. So from a BC planning perspective, that's a peacetime activity. You, you do that when you know everything else is is kind of uh, quiet. Um, you develop your plans. You you test your plans. You exercise. You train. You know those are all the kind of peacetime activities that go on. But then when you know the balloon goes up and you need to respond, what you need to have is people that are a confident in those plans, b know what they're meant to be doing as part of those plans, and c usually some guidance in terms of crisis management decision making um, and how to handle things in terms of that running a different agenda because it runs at a different pace there's a different rhythm to it it's not business as usual we have to discard some of the 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 trappings of business as usual and and get on with the you know the real what's important on identifying that and focusing on that now sometimes you and you know the real trick of this is if you can build that trusted partner be that kind of the voice of reason and conscience on the shoulder of a ceo or the executives leading that response that's the kind of sweet spot you're getting the person who's taking essentially the rap um, if things go wrong to make those decisions but based on informed uh, inf- you know, information and hopefully informed processes where you know the danger is is that people feel that they can defer to you for that decision making or worse the business feels that you're going to take control off of them which again you're not here to do you're here to keep them in control very much so but give them advice on you know based on either experience or what's gone on before or established processes and procedures how can the business continuity manager not be the person responsible for the response richard mcglave had the best explanation of this conundrum. If you run a parallel, uh, in health and safety, uh, it it would always be the case that the health and safety manager is not responsible for health and safety. They're responsible for the management system of health and safety. Uh, Health and safety is uh, managed at at a line management level. 
that would be the common uh, sort of view of health and safety. And that's always been something that I've heard uh, business continuity related to. So in other words, I am the business continuity manager, but I am not responsible for business continuity. I'm responsible for the practice and the planning for it. But if the event ever happens, then it's not me that's going to lead the incident. It's not me that's going to manage that particular incident or invocation. I'm not going to be the person doing it. It's a fine line, though. Are you the advisor on the shoulder of the Gold Command? Or are you just running the show? Richard had some thoughts on how that distinction plays out in the real world, but also on the myth that CEOs aren't always cut out to be good crisis leaders. There was never an incident where I wasn't the person that was managing the incident. But the reality would be is that as a business continuity practitioner and the lead of it, you have been exposed to all of these scenarios that we've spoken about previously in this podcast. You've been exposed to all of that planning and you're the person that is the closest to what was to be done if this if this was to happen. Not the exec team. They maybe have done a few exercises, but other than that, they're not exposed to the same level of information and experience you have in respect of these things if it ever goes pear-shaped. So my, it's not an official role, I would say, within anything, but you almost become a consigliere to whoever is the senior management during an event, and they will lean on you, particularly in the early stages of an event. Rarely would you be appointed the chief executive of an organisation without having leadership qualities. You know, it would be pretty much unknown. Rarely would you not be a lateral thinker. So their lateral thinking in the later stages or as an event starts to roll out really comes to the fore. You, they really then start to lean less and less on you as a business continuity or a risk practitioner beyond the event, beyond the sort of planned reaction. When it starts to move into more about strategic reaction or even tactical reaction at the level, these people are highly educated, highly experienced, particularly in large organisations, and are used to dealing with crisis. One of the benefits of having the business continuity manager lead the response is that the experience improves how you plan and manage BC in future. But actually, those benefits aren't just for the practitioner. Richard also talked about the benefits you get when it's the executive team leading the response. Well, there's two massive benefits that come out of a having an executive team been through an event like this. Uh, the first benefit is that now business continuity or resilience is now the top of their agenda the next day or the, or the weeks after that particular event. Their openness to uh, considering improvements uh, within the management system for these things is pretty much you're pushing an open door at that stage. Also, you're pushing an open door in respect of them undergoing further training and further exercising and more commitment and more resource and funding towards business resilience in general if they've been through that. So that's one of the fundamental benefits of coming out of it. The learnings are really specific to the scenario. So other than you know the sort of high-level management of these events, certain scenarios will drive out specific learnings. 
So, you know, you will recover things in the wrong sequence and therefore you will learn that that was the wrong sequence. You will basically, uh, and, and I mean from a dependency sequence, uh, you will recover things against the wrong priorities and you will change your view of prioritization. You will change your view of how you communicate. So everything improves by default. Let's have an example now. When Leicestershire County Council suffered a sand failure, Julie Goddard was unexpectedly called up to lead the recovery. It was a storage area network failure when I was at, um, at uh, a county council. And the sand was due to be replaced, ironically, and sort of about a month before the work was due to happen to swap in the new sand, the old one failed catastrophically. And I, I took the call at six o'clock in the morning from the, one of the techie guys and he said, Jules, the sand's gone down. And I said, did it fall down or was it taken down? And he said, it fell down. I said, great. So then we had a situation where all of the critical services, and that means um, social care, children's services, schools, libraries, all went down because obviously the servers were sitting there humming along nicely, but the data on the sand was not accessible at all. And so the whole, all the whole lot, all the systems went down, effectively, or were inaccessible. And um, straight away we invoked, I, I, I invoked the incident team. It was a very good response. The first thing we did was trigger a call cascade, um, communication straight away to all of the teams to say, this is a situation. Fortunately, it was six o'clock in the morning. So we were able to trigger the call tree and also we put notices up in the in the main county hall head office so that as soon as people came in, there was a whiteboard on every entrance saying, this is a situation, please don't call the IT service desk, they're already under immense pressure in the IT team. So one of the first things we did was communicate staff to say, this is the situation, don't call the IT team, they're under pressure. And it worked because the IT team were sitting there, the people that would have taken calls literally were taking almost no calls because we proactively communicated out that there was a problem. So that was a great help, first of all. Um, and then the incident team kicked in and obviously we got all the techies on it. We've got people talking to America, um, IBM in America, to try and work out what had gone on. Uh, we had incident meetings that started right from the off from nine o'clock in the morning. But what was interesting was the incident lead, who was a really nice guy and very good at what he did, um, he also happened to be in charge of the IT team. They also came under his umbrella. And he said to me, Jules, I want to get in that computer room and understand what's going on. I want you to lead this incident, not me. And I'm handing the baton over to you. And I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> So I ended up being the incident lead, effectively goal command um, for that incident. And that's fine. I mean, it wasn't the way, that wasn't what the plan said, but actually this is where you have to be, care, be prepared to be flexible. I do think any BC plan needs to have some flex and uh, agility. It's that word agile that people use a lot, but it does need to be flexible. And, and it was, I was actually really even though I wasn't that wasn't the intended plan that I lead the incident I shouldn't really lead the incident but it went well and it was great experience for me um, and actually when we got through the other side of that um, I actually got quite a commendation from the senior management 
from the, um, the council for my running of that incident. So it's kind of one of my CV moments because I got a, you know, a pat on the back for that and I think I got a special internal award for running you know, the incident. But I couldn't say it was perfect. You know, I couldn't say, well, I got that award because this, this incident management response was perfect because it wasn't. We had issues and we had challenges. It probably was the first time. I mean, because as BC manager, you wouldn't expect to be gold command, really. The, the decisions that when you know when something's that serious, um, and obviously depending how you how you categorise your bronze, silver, gold response, gold command should really be the highest levels of the organisation. So it's a it's a bit of a blessing in disguise. I wouldn't. It wasn't planned that way. I wouldn't have expected to, but I was asked to do it, so I did, and it was really great experience. So thankfully. Julie had a positive experience. I asked her what she learned and how it informs her planning now. I mean, I think one of the first things as Gold Command is, is making sure you're not getting too caught up in the detail. As Gold Command, you're there to get an oversight and give clear direction, but you're not there to know all of the detail. You have experts around you that do that. So when I was in goal, in that seat, what I was looking for was a representative from all the teams that would support the incident, which is basically mainly IT um, and also facilities to some degree, but also a representative from all the critical teams to tell me how it was for them. Um, and explain to me without going into too much details um, and I had a list of questions in front of me so what's the impact on you um, what are you doing right now to try and mitigate any impacts are there any issues or concerns that you need a decision on do you need to spend any money on anything um, and so I, I kind of I think the, the thing for me was to keep it at a high level and making sure you're keeping an oversight. If you start going down into too much detail in any one and start interfering in areas where, frankly, you don't have the expertise, you're in danger of derailing the incident. Your job is to keep an oversight and coordinate and make sure that the key decisions are being made, that the in, in this case that people's lives aren't at risk and if they are what you're doing and if there's any decisions that need to be made and there was decisions um, being as I'm not the, the most senior person in the company by quite some way I would take any decisions and I would kick them up and say to the, the chief exec of the council we've got a problem here although I'm acting gold command I can't make this decision you need to make this decision and, and I was the point that then took that and passed it back out to the team so it's almost if you were to draw a triangle like that, you would generally put, you'd think of putting the gold command at the top, I'd almost invert the triangle and put it that way up and put me at the bottom, making sure that the coordination is going on above me. And that was really important. Um, and it is sometimes a mistake that I see people at senior levels do, not because they, you know, not intentionally, but if it's somebody who's usually used to dealing with detail, they can end up trying to get into too much detail. And it is not their job as Gold Command to get into too much detail. It's their job to make sure the right experts are onto it and are dealing with it and are escalating anything which they can't deal with. And also picking up any dependencies or any undercurrents which might derail it. So it's really important that you're keeping it at a high level. I suppose it is that, and it was that kind of thing that made me realise. Um, that you can't write detailed BC plans because, because you know, when you're at a senior level, um, and I've seen this happen with companies, they make the mistake of writing BC plans and they give the wrong level of detail to the wrong people. And if you give your senior team an instant response plan that's this thick, they won't read it, frankly, and nor should they. 
you know, they need one page that says, what do I, as a leader, need to do? What are the core steps I need to take? And actually, on my um, incident response plans, the main incident team agenda is literally one page of key steps outlining. And it is that you should not try and bamboozle your senior team with loads of detail. They don't need it. They've got experts to do that. And you should trust them to do it um, and feedback to you. And that was the biggest learning for me. And I think I probably did it anyway. I think that was my way. But it did, it, it did underline for me that that is the right way to do things. Make sure that the right levels in, in the organization have the right level of detail. It's the need to know thing. So the people at bronze level and operational level will have the detail of how they bring their processes back online, what the, what the uh, dependencies are, what systems they need, what key documents they need, um, and all of that kind of thing. Different view at gold level. What you need to know is that they are doing that and that they are a clear escalation path and they're coming to you and you're giving them direction if they need, <coughs> if they need any um, you know, instruction. Um, so that was the biggest learning for me, really. Um, and it was... What was really important was to bring the team together because you are working as a team. You know, um, the last thing you want is people falling out or, you know, not, not working together because you haven't brought that team. And it is a, an instant response when you're at Goldland. It's all about teamwork and people helping each other out. So where we'd got our um, critical services that needed help, we would move people from a team that weren't critical into there to help them out. You know, who, who's got the skills that we can drag into that team to give that team a hand, whereas those skills aren't being used at the moment. And it is all about moving your resource around to make sure that you're propping up the most critical areas, which, again, is something I would do as goal command, is just make sure that you're facilitating that, that you know, use, best use of resources, I suppose. This is a sentiment echoed by Simon Freeston. I think only one person reads an emergency plan and that's the person who reviews it. And the only time they read it is when they review it. It's great having a 40-page emergency plan that will tell you exactly what to do in every single situation imaginable, but you're not going to use it at four o'clock in the morning. It's just not going to happen. The thing I learned from that is you've got to pass the four o'clock in the morning test. If you can't use it at four o'clock in the morning, it's not a good document. And now for our second real-life disaster story from Julie. You might think some risks don't apply to you. Terrorism, for instance. It's probably on everyone's risk register, but perhaps with a very low score for likelihood if you don't consider yourself to be a target. In this instance, Julie worked for a non-political food and drink company. It wasn't based in a high-risk area like the city centre of London, Birmingham or Manchester, but it was caught up in a religious controversy and became a target. We, because we were a Danish company, we were affected directly by the Mohammed cartoon situation and uh, we were targeted directly in the UK and in Denmark. Um, and so on one occasion, to cut a long story short, I had to put our work area recovery site on standby for our, our main head office in Leeds, um, but I couldn't tell them why because we didn't want it to get out on in the media that we were being targeted. And then if we were to move to our backup site, we also didn't want people following us there, either from the media or from the people that were, that were um, threatening us. Um, so that was quite a challenging time. And the only reason we were targeted is because 
our Danish head office um, was right next to the newspaper office that produced the cartoons of the Muhammad, you know, that, that whole thing about the Muhammad cartoon. And they saw us as an easy target um, because we supplied something like 90% of dairy product to the Middle East. So they targeted us as a high profile company. So it was a most bizarre situation because we were caught up in politics that really had nothing to do with us. We were in touch with West Yorkshire Counterterrorism Unit. Um, I was liaising with them. They turned up. We, we told them as there was a particular day where we took a threat into our site in Leeds and we knew we had to be ready to move people out quickly. Um, and the, the counterterrorism contacted, they turned up, basically two busloads of them, can you believe? By which time um, the situation had changed a little because there was a car at the front of the building that was clearly, they had intent, but they'd moved out further down the access road, just a little way from the building. And actually by the time the counterterrorism people arrived, they were sort of edging their way backwards and that the counterterrorism people moved them off site. And there was a view that it may have just been what's called sabre rattling. So they might not have actually been um, had anything in the car that could have caused us damage. But the, the point was they were there to threaten us. And then it led us down the route of, well, actually milk's, milk, dairy product, is a soft target because you could use it to get to a lot of people if you were able to... Um, drop something into that into a tanker of milk or somewhere in the production line that didn't get picked up you could it's, it's no different to contaminating water deliberately contaminating water because milk and dairy products is used so widely by everyone so then what we did we um, stayed very close with the uh, west yorkshire counterterrorism unit and i worked closely with them and we actually had them walk around the lead site which included not just the head office but also our flagship dairy site they walked around to do a, a counterterrorism uh, check and tell us and point out where we needed to strengthen our our, um, our protection. Um, for instance, having things like cameras on production lines and so on at key points where something could be dropped into the milk and so on. So it became quite a uh, an interesting but quite scary kind of project, if you want to call it a project. This episode focused on who should be in charge of the crisis. In our second episode on managing the crisis, we're going to look at what it takes to be a good crisis leader. Our closing advice ties those two topics together. Here's Dean's recommendations about the traits and skills you need to be a great business continuity professional, both in planning and in the response. I'm not sure if there's a kind of perfect mix or recipe for, uh, for that perfect professional. People come to this from all kind of backgrounds and all kind of walks of life. Yeah, I think there is a, a propensity for those people who are good at you know lateral thinking, problem solving, critical thinking, not being able to you know get too upset or worried or flustered when things aren't going you know how you want or expect them to go. Then I think you know you're probably cut cut out of the right kind of material to have that kind of career. Um, there are kind of I'd say three really key key aspects to it. From the BC planning perspective, you've got to have that kind of, how would I describe it, that analytical and um, the mindset that you can, you can go out, you can find that information, you can engage with people and get information from them and work with them to, to do that and then analyze it. Then in the crisis management piece, 
you transition then from that kind of peacetime activity into a very much you know pressurized situation where most people are, are worried or anxious or panicking um, and you bring that aura of calm and that you're going to get through it as long as you got decent processes and the people that are running those processes know their roles then you will get through it and then that kind of third aspect is and probably the most important is the ability to be able to build and maintain relationships with your internal stakeholders with one another in your team your external partners because when the chips are down it really counts that you've got those relationships and you can you can problem solve and you can make things work and you can have honest and open dialogue and be able to make decisions under pressure when you really have to and and really that's for me the most important so the hospitality management example you talked about is a perfect example of that because someone who does that is bound to have good interpersonal and relationship management skills obviously so i think if you can roll your sleeves up and get on with it and be able to converse with you know the mechanical engineers guys who's trying to fix the, the power plant or the acu that's bust versus placating or explaining perhaps quite a technical issue to a CEO who's then got to go in front of a camera. If you can you know, balance that, then yeah, you've got it made, I think.